On January 4, 2015, 67-year-old Shelley Gilbert was at home at her apartment on Beekman Place on Manhattan's Upper East Side with her husband, 70-year-old Thomas Gilbert. The best way to describe Shelley Gilbert is she's soft-spoken and she sort of epitomizes elegance and class. She had been married to her husband for 30 years. And she and Thomas Sr. started out their day just like they did many other Sundays. He had played a game of doubles tennis at the River Club, an exclusive members club they belonged to on East 52nd Street. But just after 3 p.m. that afternoon, Shelley got an unexpected visitor. She opened the door and saw her son, 30-year-old Thomas Gilbert Jr., who went by Tommy, standing there. Just a side note, for clarity, because the father and son have the same name, I'm going to refer to Thomas Gilbert Sr. as Thomas or Thomas Sr. and Thomas Gilbert Jr. as Tommy. Tommy was carrying a gym bag and wearing a hoodie. He told Shelley that he was there to see his dad. He said he wanted to talk to him about business. Now, on the surface, Tommy seemed to have it all. But Benjamin Wallace, who did some great reporting on the case, wrote in Vanity Fair that even though Tommy was born into a life of money and privilege, he had had some hard times over the years and multiple mental health issues. I covered this case in Manhattan court, and I remember being struck by the fact that even wearing an orange jumpsuit, Tommy looked like he basically just stepped off of a Calvin Klein catwalk. Benjamin Wallace wrote in Vanity Fair, quote, He was the son of an investment banker and a former debutante and was raised in an environment of extreme privilege. He was a strapping six feet three inches, gym-bodied and catalog model handsome, with a man-bun-worthy sweep of blonde hair and piercing blue eyes. Anyone glancing at the galleries of black-tie society pictures online would have seen a dashing man about town, seemingly at ease among his fellow swells, end quote. I chose that quote because it perfectly describes how Manhattan society saw Tommy Gilbert. But the truth was that all those images of him in tuxedos at galas hid a much darker reality. Tommy's father, Thomas Sr., went to the elite prep school Andover. Then he went to Princeton and Harvard Business School. Thomas Sr. worked on Wall Street for several decades and then eventually founded a hedge fund. As a child, Tommy seemed to start out on kind of a similar path to his dad. He went to Deerfield, a top school, then Buckley, then Princeton. But since he graduated, he had been what friends and family would call a failure to launch. In 2015, Tommy was 30 years old, but he couldn't hold down a job. Over the years, he tried a few different things. He took a bartending course, and according to Vanity Fair, he did some talk about acting and modeling. He told a lot of his friends that he was starting a hedge fund. It never happened. The reality was his parents paid him rent and gave him an allowance. But according to his family, other than his failure to hold down a job, the much bigger problem was his mental health issues over the years and his growing rage, which seemed to be directed toward friends, lovers, and especially his father. Things between Tommy and his father had been getting more and more tense before that Sunday, so Shelley was happy to see him. He asked Shelley to go out to a shop across the street and get him a sandwich and a Coke. They didn't have any of that kind of soda in the house, so she agreed and headed out. But a few minutes later, something made Shelley turn back. She would later tell investigators that she had a bad feeling. Sadly for the Gilberts, Tommy showing up unexpectedly was not always a good surprise. His behavior with friends had been getting more violent and unpredictable. Then there was the hoodie, which Shelley would later tell investigators was something Tommy tended to wear when he felt threatened. 
When she came back and went inside her apartment, she saw something that looked like a scene out of a horror movie. Her husband was lying on the floor in a pool of blood next to their bed. He had been shot in the head and had a gun in his hand. Tommy was gone. I'm Katherine Townsend. This is Red Collar. After finding her husband lying in a pool of blood on their bedroom floor, Shelly Gilbert called 911. What's the emergency today, ma'am? My husband is, I think, dead. The call goes on for several minutes, and at this point, one of the dispatchers tries to talk Shelly through how to do chest compressions on her husband. But then, when she says she thinks he's been shot, you can hear the second dispatcher come back on the line. Hello, ma'am. You said your husband was shot? Yes. How long ago? Probably 10, 15 minutes ago. 10 minutes ago, maybe. 10 minutes ago he was shot? Maybe 15. By whom? My son, I, who is nuts. But I didn't know he was this nuts. Police and paramedics arrived on the scene, but Thomas Gilbert Sr. was declared dead at 3.42 p.m. Detectives immediately knew that the crime scene looked kind of suspicious. First of all, Thomas Sr. was still holding the gun in his right hand, and his hand was resting on his chest with his left hand kind of over it, covering the weapon. This seemed like an impossible position to get into if you shoot yourself in the head, because normally, police say, you would drop the weapon. The weapon would have been slightly away from the body. Also, it's hard to imagine how someone could shoot themselves in the head and then wrap their hand on top of the gun. At a press conference... NYPD Chief of Investigations, Robert Boyce, said the scene at Beekman Place looked like a staged crime scene. There was basically no question about who did it. Police pulled the surveillance video that showed Tommy wearing a hoodie, carrying a gym bag, and then the video showed Shelly leaving. Then Tommy left shortly after her. This all happened within about a 15-minute time frame. Now, police needed to find Tommy. And they didn't have to look far. They showed up at his ground floor apartment at 350 West 18th Street in Chelsea and looked through the peephole. They could see a suitcase with clothes kind of scattered around. After trying to talk to Tommy through the door, he ended up surrendering just before 11 p.m. Police executed a search warrant, and later they said they found the murder weapon, a 40 caliber Glock, inside that apartment. According to Vanity Fair, they also found some other items, including magazine clips, hollow-point bullets, a red dot laser gun light, handcuffs, and a credit card skimming device. They also found several blank white credit cards. So all the ingredients for a credit card fraud scheme were inside that apartment. They also searched the family's summer home out in the Hamptons. The Gilberts owned a home in the Georgica Association gated community in Wainscott. Prosecutors said they found even more items there. Tommy had been spending a lot of time in that house owned by his parents, kind of holed up there sometimes without his parents' permission. So from the beginning, this was not a murder mystery in the sense that they needed to find the killer. They were asking the question, was Tommy sane at the time of the murder? According to the New York Times, in order to be successful with an insanity defense, the person needs to prove 
that mental illness prevented them from understanding that they committed a crime or knew that their actions were morally wrong. Now, Tommy's family say that he was psychotic, but the prosecution and the police say he was a spoiled trust fund kid who killed his dad when he started to cut his allowance. In order to figure out what happened inside the Gilbert's apartment that day, we first have to understand the Gilbert family dynamic, mental illness, but also inevitably, we have to follow the money trail. According to friends and family, Thomas and Shelley Gilbert had a happy marriage and they had all the trappings of success. They lived on the Upper East Side, they had the Hamptons house. They were members of the Maidstone Club in each Hampton, which a lot of people see as kind of the pinnacle of WASP success out there. It's pretty much impossible to get into and the members clubs in Manhattan. They had two children, Tommy and his younger sister Claire, a freelance writer and editor who came to court with her mom to support Tommy. Now, there are not a ton of people who talk about what Thomas Sr. was like emotionally. He seemed to be a pretty private guy. One fact that came out was that he liked esoteric sports, like court tennis, which is kind of like squash. After he stopped working on Wall Street, Thomas Sr. founded his hedge fund, Wayne Scott Capital Partners, in 2011. There's also not much info out there about that fund. Early press reports say that the fund managed around $200 million dollars, and focused on healthcare and biotech. Also, a lot of media reports focused on the family's supposed extreme wealth. They talked about the value of the fund, and it's true that the Gilberts definitely had money, especially by the standard of most Americans. But by New York finance standards, behind the scenes, the truth was that things weren't going great financially. This is why in white collar and red collar cases, it's so important to go behind the scenes you have to really understand what's going on. And often, clues can be found in financial documents. Being New York rich isn't the same as being rich almost anywhere else in the country. The Gilberts had moved out of their townhouse on East 61st Street and rented the one-bedroom apartment on Beekman Place for $6,000 a month. Now, again, for most people, this is a huge amount of money. But by their standards, it seemed to be a definite step down. They also put their Hamptons house up for sale. According to Vanity Fair, the hedge fund wasn't managing $200 million. They were actually managing around $7.3 million, which the magazine called a pittance in that world. There were rumors that Thomas Sr. had taken steps to try to make it seem like he was managing more money than he actually was, that he had taken out a loan against the $4 million mortgage he had on the Hamptons house. According to an SEC filing that was referenced in Vanity Fair, Thomas Sr. reported having raised a total of $575,000 from three investors. It seemed like he was trying to inflate the size of the fund because the more money you appear to be managing, the easier it is to find other investors. After the killing, I went to Manhattan surrogate court and, like some other journalists, tracked down the probate records. The bottom line was that at the time of Thomas Sr.'s death, his net worth was around $1.6 million. Knowing what was going on with the Gilbert's financial records will become extremely important in figuring out why Thomas Sr. was killed. In one of Benjamin Wallace's articles for Vanity Fair titled A Gilded Rage, he talked about what he called the implosion of a silver spoon life. Benjamin talked to one of Tommy's former classmates at Deerfield School, and that classmate said he remembered Tommy as a kid as being kind of a golden boy, said he was very talkative, even a little cocky. His mother, Shelley, said similar things about her son's time at Deerfield. She talked to a reporter from the East Hampton Star 
and said that her son seemed to thrive at that school, that he was very athletic. He played varsity football and basketball. Then he was accepted to Princeton after high school. That was his father's alma mater. And Shelley said that at that point, he still seemed like a pretty happy, normal kid. I went down the internet rabbit hole of Reddit comments on this case. One Reddit commenter wrote, quote, Went to school with this kid when I was younger. Nothing seemed off with him back then. He was smart, athletic, and all the teachers and coaches loved him. Couldn't fathom him growing up to murder his pops. But a lot changes as we grow older. So who knows what demons eventually consumed him, end quote. I covered this murder trial and I got really emotionally invested in it. Especially because Tommy's mother was his biggest supporter the whole way through. She was always so polite to reporters. She showed up at almost every hearing and she was there for her son 1000%. I can't imagine how hard this must have been for her because her son had killed her life partner, her husband of 30 years. And yet she was put in this impossible position of having to support her husband's killer. But she loved her son so much she was able to do that. Even though you could tell Shelley was a really private person... She spoke out to try to help Tommy. In an interview with East Hampton Star, she showed the reporter an advisor's report for Tommy from back in the day. It read, quote, Tommy has a positive, upbeat attitude, a terrific sense of humor, a calm, unflappable manner, growing confidence, and a sound sense of self, end quote. But as Tommy began to get older, he started to change. Shelley testified that this started with small things. He started to believe that things were contaminated, First, small areas, and then eventually, according to Shelley, their entire Beekman Place apartment. He also believed that other places, like parts of JFK Airport, were contaminated as well. She said that he turned his belief about contamination on people, too. He would ask her to buy new clothes every time she visited him. He would get very angry and fixated on certain people, sometimes friends, and eventually most of his rage seemed to center on his father. She said that during this time, she basically felt helpless. Her son was wearing gloves and telling a therapist that he believed the cast of Saturday Night Live was targeting him, according to one therapist who spoke to the court. Tommy seemed to develop some symptoms that appeared to be kind of like OCD, but the worst was the growing rage. And this is a situation that so many parents will sadly relate to, no matter what their economic status is. Because by the time Tommy's parents figured out what was going on and how bad it was getting, their son was over 18. They tried to encourage him to get therapy, but they couldn't make him go. And because of HIPAA, they couldn't really make the doctors tell them what was going on. They felt like they were just pretty much helpless to watch until something horrible happened. And things kept getting worse. Tommy's mental deterioration got worse at college. Now, as with most things, there are two sides to this story. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Tommy did a lot of drugs at Princeton. He smoked pot, did acid, and took other hallucinogens, including mushrooms according to medical records and court testimony. His mom said that he was doing this to self-medicate to try to deal with his mental health. But the prosecution used the drug use to help paint a picture of him as this hard-partying playboy. Actually, they suggested the drug use could have been what brought on the mental illness. One year, he told his mom that he was taking some time out. He was going to leave school and just surf for a while. She said she was okay with his decision. She thought that lowering his stress could make him better. Tommy started to not be able to sleep. While he was in South Carolina on his sabbatical, he checked himself into a hospital. During this time, it came out in court that he didn't talk to anyone except for cab drivers and doctors. 
Another time, he overdosed on mushrooms and cocaine. While he was high, he attacked a staffer in the ER where he was taken. But his parents hired him a lawyer, and the charges were later dropped. It also came out in court that while he was at school, he was disciplined by Princeton for possessing drug paraphernalia and for software that he allegedly used to hack into other people's computers. In the end, Tommy made it back to Princeton. And after six years, he finally graduated. But he was developing a criminal record. According to Vanity Fair, Princeton police arrested him shortly before graduation. He was charged with possession of cocaine and psychedelic mushrooms and with third-degree aggravated assault for the attack on the emergency first aid worker. Again, he was able to go through a program and get the charges dropped. After graduation, he came back to New York City and kind of seemed to drift around. Friends told Vanity Fair the same thing that his family said in court. He was this gorgeous guy, but after a few minutes, he would notice that he didn't look you in the eye, and his behavior was getting more, put bluntly, bizarre. Yet, at other times, he seemed completely normal. He dated a lot of good-looking women. He was seen out and about in New York society galas. So in a way, it could be argued that his good looks and privilege allowed him to get away with murder. But his family insisted that actually the fact that he was so well-spoken and his looks worked against him because no one could imagine that someone with that much going for them could be in such serious psychological torment. After Tommy was arrested, he pleaded not guilty. He refused to communicate with the court-appointed psychiatrist who were sent to examine him. He also refused to talk to his lawyer. Tommy would say that he was fine, and so the prosecutors said that he was faking mental illness. His mom and his lawyer said he was not fit to stand trial. They said that he wasn't faking insanity or malingering. They said he was faking wellness. At the time, Tommy was represented by Alex Spiro. Alex Spiro is a character in his own right. He went to Harvard and worked in a psychiatric hospital. He also worked for the Manhattan District Attorney's Office before going into criminal law. The case was presided over by Manhattan Supreme Court Justice Melissa Jackson. She's a great-granddaughter of Theodore Roosevelt. The courtroom started to look like the high society pages of a Hamptons magazine. The true crime writer John Glatt covered the case for Town and Country magazine. The judge ordered a psychiatric evaluation. So two court-ordered psychiatrists stated that Tommy was unfit to stand trial. But then the district attorney, Craig Ortner, challenged those results. Tommy was seen by another psychologist, Dr. Stuart Kirshner, and he found that Tommy was fit to stand trial. I was there the day Dr. Kirshner gave his testimony. He said that in order to be found fit, the defendant just needed to understand the charges against him and be able to assist in his own defense. He said that he was aware that Tommy had had mental issues in the past. He said that he, quote, saw absolutely no symptom of a mental disorder that would impact on his ability to proceed to trial, end quote. This started a year and a half of back and forth between the DA's office and the prosecutor. Psychiatrists had come in to interview Tommy. Eventually, Tommy's lawyers say that he came to believe the people coming to examine him were imposters. Tommy Gilbert's trial was dragging on. His lawyer, Alex Spiro, kept asking Justice Jackson to have more and more psychological tests. He insisted that Tommy was delusional. He used the words acute psychosis. He said that his client would not only not assist in his own defense, he would just sit there and stare at him during their meetings and not talk at all. 
The prosecutor, Craig Ortner, kept objecting, saying that Tommy was faking it and just trying to drag things out so that he could get an insanity defense. Over the years that this trial dragged on, Tommy's transformation was remarkable. In the beginning, the New York Post published those pictures of him wearing that orange jumpsuit. He looked like a model being dragged into the courtroom. By the end, he looked more like the Unabomber. He would shuffle in looking down, wearing handcuffs. He would fluctuate between not showing up at all or just staring at the floor and then having these bizarre outbursts in court. His hair grew long and unkempt, and he grew a full beard. He seemed to age a decade in less than two years. During this time, Shelley Gilbert kept showing up to every hearing and trying to raise awareness about mental illness. She later told the TV channel Oxygen that Tommy made his mom and dad promise they would only tell immediate family what was going on when they started to realize that he had mental illness issues. She said that he was concerned about appearances. Over the years, Vanity Fair said friends and family talked about how to deal with what they were calling the Tommy situation. His anger, his rages, and increasingly this idea that his father was persecuting him. Over the years, his mom told the court, they wondered if he might be schizophrenic although he was never officially diagnosed. The New York Post published an interview with a woman he dated, a publicist named Anna Rothschild. She was almost 20 years older than Tommy. They dated in 2014. She said he was gorgeous, but definitely troubled, and spent most of his time alone. She said he discussed starting a hedge fund, but told the paper, quote, his dad wouldn't help him and told him he was stupid. He's very much a loner. His phone never rang. No one texted him or called him. End quote. She said that other than the occasional catering job, which he would leave before the end of the event, he spent his time surfing in the Hamptons. She said she found herself wondering, quote, how could a guy be that gorgeous, that wealthy, that fit, and kill his dad? This is the last thing in a million years that I thought he could do, end quote. Again, the focus on the fact that he surfed and spent a lot of time just hanging out in the Hamptons was used against him. The district attorney's office said that this was evidence that he could function on some level and that he was mentally competent. But Tommy's mother and his family kept insisting that doctors told them people with schizophrenia are able to function on a certain level, but this doesn't mean that they can hold down a job. So his parents wanted to remove as much stress as they could from his life. They paid his $2,400 a month rent. They covered all his bills and his club memberships. And they gave him extra money to live on. But the amount that they were giving him kept decreasing. First, they gave him $1,000 per week. Then they reduced it to $600. And shortly before Thomas Gilbert Sr.'s death, Tommy's allowance had been reduced to $300. I was in court the day a woman was interviewed about a date she went on with Tommy. She really did a good job of describing his creepy behavior. She said she became friendly with him because they lived in the same building. He invited her over to watch a game. And she said while he was there... He basically ignored her and seemed to stare straight through her. Eventually, after several minutes of silence, she became so uncomfortable that she left. And this seemed to happen to a lot of people who spent time around Tommy. In 2013, he met a chef named Brianna. They had a whirlwind romance, and she moved into his apartment in Chelsea. Then he suggested that they go on a trip. He told her that his parents were renting out their Hamptons house. But, according to Vanity Fair, he said he had permission to build a hut on the property. So... He cleared out the site, but when they showed up to that residence, the tenant showed up and clearly had no idea what they were doing there and told them they had to leave. They rented an apartment in Amagansett in the Hamptons, 
Brianna testified that Tommy was often late with the rent. She said he was sweet at times, but also very secretive. He had these two safes, in the Hamptons and in Manhattan. At some point, Brianna said the relationship went south when he started to direct his anger at her. He started getting paranoid, doing things like looking through her phone. Finally, the relationship ended when she started to suspect that Tommy was cheating on her. She had found some strange hairs that weren't hers, and she found a box of condoms in his apartment in Chelsea, even though she testified they didn't use them. She said, quote, He was extremely good-looking. That's why I let him get away with stuff as much as I did. End quote. And when she was asked about the condoms, she said, quote, I remember thinking at least he was using protection. I didn't have the best self-esteem back then. End quote. But Tommy's rage was about to get a lot worse. He turned on someone else, a former friend and roommate named Peter Smith. Peter Smith went to school with Tommy when they were younger. In 2012, they reconnected. Peter needed a roommate, so Tommy moved into his place in Brooklyn. It sounds like, over time, Tommy started getting more paranoid about Peter. It supposedly started with Peter allegedly flirting with a girl Tommy liked, but Peter later said he really had no idea why it started. The bottom line was, over time, Peter started to get more and more creeped out by Tommy's erratic behavior. Eventually, he told him he had to move out. That started a massive downward spiral for Tommy. According to Vanity Fair, a few weeks later, a flagpole was speared through the door of Peter's family home in the Hamptons. No one called the police that time. Peter tried to stay away from Tommy, and for a few months that seemed to work. But in October 2013, Peter was at a movie premiere. He was walking down the streets when Tommy came out of the darkness and attacked him. Tommy savagely beat his former friend Peter and broke his nose. And even after that, according to friends, Tommy was saying that Peter was out to get him. Peter took out a restraining order against Tommy. Then, a few months later, Peter's family home in the Hamptons burned to the ground. According to police and according to court testimony, everyone pretty much believed that Tommy was the prime suspect. In the end, they couldn't prove it. By late 2014, Tommy really didn't have any friends left. His mom was the only person he talked to on the phone regularly. He had broken up with his girlfriend, Brianna. He had alienated pretty much everyone, so he was spending most of his time ordering takeout and holed up in his apartment in Chelsea. He lived on a monthly allowance given to him by his parents. And occasionally he would do something like filing papers with the SEC to register a hedge fund he named Mameluke Capital. But... He never did anything with it. Things were getting more and more tense, and it seemed like his rage was building to an uncontrollable point. Finally, Justice Jackson declared that Tommy was fit to stand trial. So the trial began, and every single element of his life was poured over. His former therapist took the stand to discuss Tommy's mental illness. She said he told her that he had paranoid thoughts. He had been prescribed antipsychotic medications in the past, but he had a habit of not taking them. One doctor who treated him for a period of several years diagnosed him with a variety of things, including compulsive disorder, depressive disorder, paranoid disorder, and psychosis. He clearly had a history of paranoid behavior, but the prosecution pointed out 
that over the years, Tommy went to doctor after doctor, but he was never officially diagnosed with schizophrenia. The DA, Craig Ortner, said that, like many New Yorkers, Tommy went to therapy and had some mental issues, but this didn't mean that he didn't know what he was doing at the time of the murders. His mother would later say that she absolutely believed that Tommy thought that his father was controlling things and having a horrible effect on him. But his lawyers and the psychologists couldn't get him to talk. The question was, was he unwilling to communicate or unable? Then he kept making headlines during the trial. At one point, he wrote the New York County District Attorney, Cyrus Vance, a letter. An excerpt of the letter was published in, of course, Town & Country. In the letter, Tommy said that he and Cyrus Vance had both gone to Buckley School. He wrote, quote, Further incarceration will not only be physically dangerous, but also continue to inflict irreparable damage on my personal life and career. End quote. He wrote that he wanted to eventually be acquitted and to have his indictment sealed. It was clear throughout the trial that he considered himself a high-profile prisoner and somehow felt he deserved special treatment. Now, all this time, he is incarcerated at Rikers Island, which is a tough prison. And when he would give interviews with newspapers, he would talk about the fact that they didn't have yoga in the prison and that he wanted to learn Mandarin. Again, his family said this just showed how delusional he was. But the prosecutor had a different view. He said it just showed that Tommy could make a really convincing argument, that he was smart, and that it wasn't actually unreasonable, given his background, for him to expect special treatment. A legal analyst named Jonna Spilbor made a comment on an Oxygen TV special about the case. She kind of broke down the debate over Tommy being found competent for trial. She said that it's possible for competency to change over time. So he was found incompetent by two different doctors. And what that really means is that there would be a break in the proceedings. It just means that everything pauses And the goal is to get him to a point where he is competent to stand trial. So it doesn't stop things. It's just a delay. Again, the question became, did Tommy know where he was and what he was doing when he killed his father? Or did he have some kind of psychotic break? And I have to say, as the trial went on, I found myself changing my mind almost every day. It reminded me a little of the Chris Porco case in that you had a mother who survived and the son who killed his father. But the Chris Porco case, it was very clear that Chris Porco was greedy. He didn't have any mental problems at all that would lead to him murdering his father. This case, it was more of a gray area. He definitely had symptoms of a mental illness. The question was, did that mean he didn't know what he was doing on the day when he killed his father? By now, Tommy had a new lawyer named Arl Levine. He made the same arguments as Alex Spiro had. He said Tommy wasn't communicating with him He believed his client was sabotaging his own defense. But Justice Melissa Jackson was hitting back by this point. She had found Tommy competent to stand trial, and she said right there in court, your client perfectly understands. The most emotional moment of the trial was probably when Shelley took the stand. She was the star witness for the prosecution after they subpoenaed her. It was just so obvious she was a loving mother who tried to do everything she could for her son. She talked about their early family life, and she made it sound pretty amazing. She talked about how Tommy changed once he reached his teen years. She said he didn't like to be controlled. Then she gave an example of him doing what she said was kind of misinterpreting events. Like his dad, who he'd been so close to, would kick a soccer ball to him. He would see that move as aggressive. Then there was the fear of contamination. 
For example, he believed that if he took certain steps, like giving people the middle finger while his hand was hidden in a pocket, that he wouldn't get contaminated. She said she absolutely believed that if the mental health system had not failed her son, his father would be alive. She said that mental illness ran in her family. According to the East Hampton Star, she described her own mother as psychotic. She said that her father had been bipolar. He took his own life at age 57. Someone asked if he was okay. He said he was fine. And then he leapt to his death. According to court documents, at least one doctor told the Gilberts they believed Tommy may have schizophrenia. But that doctor said that they believed Thomas and Shelley were resistant to accept this diagnosis. Some other members of the family seemed to believe that they could get through to Tommy with tough love. Thomas Gilbert's brother, George Beckwith Gilbert, known as Beck, testified that he couldn't see any reason why Tommy couldn't just get a job. Then there was the money trail and the computer records. A computer expert testified that Tommy went to a website called findahitman.com four times in the months leading up to the murder, according to the New York Daily News. And his computer history showed that he searched out another article on Forbes called Meet the Assassination Market Creator Who's Crowdfunding Murder with Bitcoins. The New York Post would refer to his surfer dude, gym rat lifestyle. They said he was a spoiled brat who was subsidized by his parents. And then crucially, there was his behavior after the murder, which is always key to establishing motive, especially in white-collar and red-collar cases. Shortly after the shooting, Tommy started making calls. He didn't call 911. He called his former lawyer, Alex Spiro, who, by the way, also represented him during the incident with Peter Smith in the Hamptons. He kept calling his lawyer and law offices all day. His final call to a law office ended at 10.29 p.m. This is while police were talking to him through his apartment door and right before he surrendered. What had caused him to go to the house that day and shoot his father? A psychiatrist, Dr. Jason Hirschberger, testified that he absolutely believed that the motive for Tommy was money and that the banking records suggested that Tommy planned the killing and knew exactly what he was doing. He said that his parents were cutting him off and that even with Tommy's mental health issues, crucially, Tommy never suffered from delusions. He wasn't hallucinating things that weren't there, for example, which meant that his mental illness, in this doctor's opinion, did not indicate that Tommy didn't know right from wrong. It turned out there was something else crucial that happened that day. The morning of the shooting, Thomas Sr. had left a message on Tommy's answering machine. He let Tommy know that he was cutting his allowance from $1,000 a week to $300 a week. And Shelley said something else. She said her husband was about to tell Tommy that he was going to phase out his support entirely, so he was cutting him off. What really came through during this trial was the fact that even with all their money and access and connections, at the end of the day, they couldn't do anything about their son. He was an adult. They could not force him to seek treatment. Peter Smith took the stand. He talked about what happened in the Hamptons, and he testified that Tommy had tried to kill him on several occasions. Again, I think we need to consider rewriting the rules about red-collar crime. It can overlap with mental illness. It doesn't have to be one thing or the other. Someone can have mental health issues and be greedy. Craig Ortner pointed out that Tommy did manage to deal with his fears of contamination by his dad when he needed money, for example. When he needed someone to guarantee his apartment, he was able to get over his fears in order to approach his father. So in the end, the timing and what happened on that day and in that moment ended up being crucial. 
There were obvious signs of premeditation. Tommy brought a gun to the meeting with his father. He told his mother to leave the apartment and he asked for a soda that he knew she wouldn't have. He staged the scene. He placed the gun in his father's hand and he fled. Still, Shelley told the East Hampton Star reporter, quote, he's my son, I love him dearly. What he did was not him, it was his disease. What a wonderful soul he was. That's Tommy Gilbert, end quote. She compared Tommy being blamed for killing his father with Roger Federer getting a tumor and then people saying he wasn't a good tennis player, according to the newspaper. And she told the reporter that over the years she had spent a fortune hiring lawyers and doctors. She said she was afraid to know how much money she had spent. Shelley Gilbert funded her son's entire defense. And I know what these lawyers charge per hour, so I'm guessing the number had to be a high six-figure or perhaps even a seven-figure number. It was an incredible amount of money. And while covering this trial, it was really a window into the difference between the type of defense that people with money can buy versus your average person off the street. I saw murder cases being decided in 15 minutes. And because Tommy had access to this highly funded legal defense, he was able to get the best help for years. I recommend that anyone who's interested in the legal system go and sit through a murder trial. They're open to the public, and it's actually a fascinating window into our criminal justice system. It's very eye-opening. The lead prosecutor, Craig Ortner, described Tommy as a sociopath who killed his father in cold blood. According to the New York Times, Craig Ortner said, quote, The defendant didn't want to grow up and be an adult. When his father tried to push him along in that direction and cut his allowance, he threw the ultimate tantrum, end quote. In the end... The jury didn't seem to believe the insanity defense. In 2019, Tommy was found guilty of second-degree murder, as well as guilty on the two weapons charges. At the sentencing, he talked about himself in the third person. He rambled on, and he called himself the defendant. He said, the defendant expresses remorse. But Shelley Gilbert spoke up, too. She said, quote, he's too sick to be able to judge. My husband would still be alive today if we got him to a psychiatric hospital 15 years ago. I ask you, Judge, to put him in a psychiatric hospital, somewhere close to home, so we can visit him. I know if my husband can speak from heaven, he would say this is wrong. End quote. Then, Craig Ortner had his say. He said, quote, He may have psychiatric problems, and I support mental health treatment through the Department of Corrections, but he was a functioning adult when he murdered his father. Rather than a psychotic break, he thought of this for some time. He searched for a hitman on the internet, end quote. Justice Jackson seemed to agree. She told him that, in her opinion, he was not insane at the time he killed his father. She said, you were not insane then, you were not insane now. Then Justice Jackson sentenced Tommy to life in prison, the maximum penalty. By the time he's eligible for parole, 30 years from now, he'll be in his 60s. Shelley Gilbert has said publicly that she plans to appeal. In the end, some jurors talked to ABC News. They said they did believe that Tommy had mental health issues, but they also believed that he knew at the time that what he was doing was wrong. There was the cut in allowance, and for some jurors, in the end, it all came down to the soda. It's the little details that stick with people. The fact that Tommy asked for a Coke, which he knew that his parents did not have in that house, in order to get his mom to leave the apartment that morning was a detail that stuck with them and ultimately helped seal his fate. This case has been the subject of a lot of coverage. 
John Glatt has written a book called Golden Boy that comes out in July 2021. There's also a film being made, Gilded Rage, that will star Bill Skarsgård as Tommy Gilbert. According to Vanity Fair, the Gilberts Hamptons home ended up deteriorating and looking kind of like Grey Gardens. Eventually, the 3,700-square-foot home sold for nearly $10 million. According to the magazine, the new owners tore it down. They probably planned to build a new mega-mansion on the site. Tommy was worried about losing his parents' support. Ironically, according to the New York Slayer statute, he will not be able to access any part of his dad's estate. Not that there's much left. It came out in court that his parents were trying so hard to help him. His dad would send him supportive emails and try to get him to go in for jobs. He was even giving him money posthumously. The final $300 payment from his father hit Tommy Gilbert's bank account the day after the murder. Some of Tommy's friends say they believe he's still in denial. One of them told the New York Post, he thinks he's at a spa or on vacation. The Post reporter actually did a prison visit with Tommy. At the time, he told the reporter he wanted them to see about asking Princeton groups to help get his defense funded. He said he didn't have a job at Rikers because the jobs there didn't pay enough. But he told the reporter that his mom was putting money into his prison account. Today, Tommy is at the maximum security Clinton Correctional Facility in Dannemore, New York. People call that prison Little Siberia, and it's about as far from the privileged life he knew in Manhattan as it's possible to get. He will be eligible for parole in 2045. Red Collar is an Audio Chuck original podcast. Research and writing by me, Katherine Townsend, with production assistance from Alyssa Flowers and Resonate Recordings. You can find all of our source material for this episode on our website, redcollarpodcast.com. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve?